Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. So today's episode is with the amazing Kirsten Jackson, who is at the dot IBS dietitian on Instagram. And I think IBS is something that impacts a lot of us. It impacts, we all know someone who has some sort of IBS condition. And I think the reason why I want to get Kirsten on is, Kirsten on is mainly to do because she knows what she's talking about it's something that impacts so many of us and i don't think we know how to kind of work with it how to cope with it and stuff like that so kirsten is a uk registered consultant um she's a gastroenterology dietitian she's the founder of the food treatment clinic which she set up in 2015 uh, she has undergone so many qualifications to get where she is today including a bsc honors degree in dietetics and postgraduate cert- certificate in advanced dietetics as well in addition to this she's kind of got fodmap training from king's college london university which is an incredible thing and uh, she's she has she can be seen in publications such as cosmopolitan the telegraph uh, discussing ibs uh, and she's also uh, one of the official media spokespeople for uh, the ibs network so kirsten is incredible uh, kirsten knows her stuff so some of the topics that we kind of talk about today are what is ibs the biggest misconceptions the truth about pro- probiotics can losing weight with ibs be more complicated how to deal with the actual bloating and the myths around bloating uh cope with your ibs and and kind of what can you do to help with it the fodmap diet tips to help with constipation there's so so much in this episode uh and it's it's, it's really really exciting i'm very humble that she's come on because she's a massive following and she she's starting her own podcast very very soon so i'm excited to hear that on full discretion so this podcast is sponsored by uh let's get checked so let's get checked offer home test kits for your vitamins and minerals so if you are deficient in anything their home test kits will be able to detect anything so walk the way instead of going to your doctor and getting a blood test through a needle if you're not don't like needles this is perfect they'll send uh, let's get checked will send out a kit to your house within 24 hours that kit you prick your finger rather than injecting or using a needle um, and you're able to give a sample and then free post it back to the lab and within kind of three to five days a nurse will call call you back so you can get your test done for vitamin d b12 iron female male hormones so so many things it's incredible i've used these guys myself and i hold my hands up i do have an affiliate link uh, so if you click the link in the little write-up for this um, and you enter in swf into your cart on checkout you will get 30 percent off your first time purchase i wouldn't put my name to anything if i didn't feel it was of benefit to you guys they're incredible i've used these i have to get my blood done every so often so guys let's get checked for sponsoring the podcast today and, and i hope you guys enjoy the episode with kirsten Kirsten, thank you so much for for coming on how are you yeah i'm good thank you so much for having me it's great to be here so Kirsten is going to talk about I got in the intro and stuff like that. There's so much stuff that we're going to talk about. And we're going to try and get through as much of it as possible. But I think the biggest thing that we're going to kind of talk about is IBS because it definitely impacts on a lot of people's lives and they don't think they know how to cope with it. Uh, and there's a lot of myths about it as well. So I'm going to get you to kind of start off with the basics of what is IBS? What are the main things to help manage it? why is it so difficult to find those triggers um, and any other information you, you kind of feel that will definitely help people with IBS? Mm-hmm. 
Good. So very broad questions. I like it. Okay. So yeah, so what is IBS? I think a lot of people when they get diagnosed with IBS, they kind of think, well, is this even like a proper condition? It seems really woolly. Um, But IBS is a proper condition and it's considered what we call um, a disorder of the gut-brain axis. So what that actually means, so it's basically your gut, there's no inflammation or anything like that there, but it's just very, very sensitive. So they don't know what causes it, um, but things like um, you can get bloating, you can get stomach pain, um, loose stools, constipation patient is just very sensitive to things so for example um you know you might be stressed at work and then you would end up um, having diarrhea from that whereas your colleague has the same levels of stress um, and doesn't have any symptoms so it's just showing your gut's a lot more sensitive Um, and the main things in terms of having to manage it um so first of all obviously getting proper diagnosis is very important but then going on managing it wise really it's a case of finding what your triggers are so again that's going to be different to every from person to person and typically we would use something called the low FODMAP diet which I think we're going to come on to in a little while in a little bit more depth um, and that would pinpoint your triggers so once you find your triggers you're simply going to be avoiding them but also you need to look at lifestyle factors so you know looking at things like your stress levels your sleeping patterns your movement um, is very much a holistic condition so if you just think oh I'm going to just do the diet bit but I'm not going to address my stress you're probably not going to get anywhere. Have you got any tips to manage stress at the minute? Because I think there's there's different stressors on different people at the minute. Are they working long hours with no barrier between kind of sitting at the desk all day or else they've got kids running into walls around them or else they have financial strife going on? Have you got any advice for anyone to kind of manage the stress to help with that side of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, and this has particularly come up because I've just sent out um, a newsletter all about this. But I think, first of all, it's really important to have self-awareness because I think as humans, we're really, um, really guilty of kind of saying, oh, but my life isn't as bad as so-and-so's or my life, I'm not as busy as so-and-so. And they don't realize actually how physically stressed they are. So I think self-awareness, so like if you notice your appetite changes, your heart rate is racing, you're struggling to sleep at night, these are all signs of stress, which is obviously chemical changes in your body. In terms of managing that, um, so there are things that you can look at your um, time that you have in the day and see if there's any ways that you can you know, get other people, members of the family. Obviously, with COVID, we're restricted with who, what that means um, right now um, to help out. But also things like mindfulness really, really help. So um, when I'm working with clients, I always get them to do things like some form of mindfulness. So things like meditation, journaling, or even, it sounds silly, but like adult coloring in books work for a lot of people who have got a very active mind and struggle to meditate. And it is just that consistency, you know, don't wait until you're super stressed um, and then think, right, I'm going to try and sit down for 10 minutes and meditate. It's that consistency of doing something every single day just to kind of um, reduce the stress levels because otherwise you are going to go into that fight or flight response. And before you know it, you know, it's going to be really impacting your gut and causing a lot of discomfort. Why do some people, when they get super stressed, they either forget to eat or then they, or else some people go the other way? Why is that? I think, well, I don't, I think, no, I think, I know. Um, so it's to do with what your personality is as well. And there's obviously um, genetic implications in there as well. But um, with stress, it releases a certain amount of hormones. Um, and essentially your body's going into more of a survival mode. And what that survival mode looks like is different to different people. So, so some people eating in that instance or in that few weeks isn't going to be the priority because their body thinks they're in a sense of, like, I guess, in danger or, you know, running away from something. So their body's energy is going to be focused on something else other than eating so the appetite just goes away whereas somebody else might use um, food especially we know like high carbohydrate lean sugary type foods um as a, a stress relief you know because when we eat these foods 
often we feel good anyway initially maybe not now down the line um and we we then use that to kind of um, manage our stress which isn't going to obviously help it long term but um that's why we end up turning to food maybe in the incorrect way yeah i think that's i think that's a big thing particularly during kind of lockdown in particular people have been kind of are in the, working in the kitchen maybe they've been kind of pottering around the house they can potentially reach for that kind of side of stuff as well what are the kind of the biggest misconceptions you hear about ibs because I've heard so many of them as well. There are so many things that people reach for. There's so many things that people read up on the internet. Are there any, what are the biggest ones you've heard from from working with people on a daily basis? Yeah, um, so one of the biggest ones I hate, and I, I think I hate it more because I'm actually, I have celiac disease, so I have to avoid gluten, but everyone with IBS is straight away that you must cut out gluten. Gluten actually doesn't trigger IBS. Gluten is just a protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye, the same as like whey would be found in, in dairy. There's nothing wrong with gluten, um, and it only causes problems for people with celiac disease. Um, so um, people often go a very restricted diet, you know, reading all the labels and stuff, and actually they're not reacting to that. They're reacting to something else that's that is in some of those foods as well and um, the other one is dairy again you know like if you go online it's like dairy does this dairy does that so straight away people are going dairy free when actually only a small um, amount of the population are lactose intolerant and um, so actually again people are unnecessarily restricting their diet so they're the two biggest kind of dietary ones that i'm seeing over and over again why do you think the dairy one in particular because that definitely came into my head because i know myself i can have some dairy products but i can't, may not be able to have other dairy products why do you think dairy get dairy gets such a bad rep um i think there's it's difficult to say isn't it because i know there's been different if you look over the last 10 years it's been obviously a, very, a huge shift in the way we're eating so a lot of people are going more plant-based and with and also in the last 10 years there's a lot of people um talking about nutrition in that space that unfortunately have very little qualifications so i think um there's just a lot of misinformation out there or people who maybe think they've got a little bit of knowledge they're reading scientific articles and then talking about them but they don't have the scientific um, degree or background to actually be able to interpret those in a way that's good for the public and then we're going to things like instagram for our you know messages and you know that's this kind of thing when actually we should be going to like registered dietitians doctors for um, health information you mentioned there about kind of going for sources and stuff like that. Obviously, there's, there's dietitians, there, there's doctors and stuff like that. If someone was to go, go kind of go to papers or if there was someone that you would recommend or some website that you would recommend for research, where would you send someone? Yeah, so um, so in terms of source of information for irritable bowel syndrome, um, the IBD network is very good. Um, IBD, IBS network, sorry, is the largest um, charity for irritable bowel syndrome. So they work with registered dietitians, they, re- they work with gastroenterologists, you know, people who are regulated in that space. Um, and they don't, you know, get money, they don't, um, they're not paid money to push a supplement, if you know what I mean. They, they don't have any ulterior motives. So they're definitely very good. Freelance dietitians website is very good as well. Again, all um, registered re- and regulated dietitians. And um, as part of our registration, we're not actually legally allowed to push a supplement unless you know what we're saying essentially we can't say oh take this supplement it's really good for you unless actually the, the evidence is backing that up so you know again you can trust the information on there you mentioned supplementation there because i think i think we, there's so many supplements out there but it's a lot of them can just literally stick a band-aid over the issue yeah. are there any kind of like this I think probiotics and prebiotics are the kind of the two that main ones that kind of come to mind and people will reach to those more so than trying to change the likes of the stress, the alcohol, the sleep, all that kind of stuff. What is the real truth about probiotics and prebiotics? 
So yeah, they are, um, I guess, over-exaggerated a lot of the time. I would say in about 70% of my clients, I don't use probiotics or prebiotics at all. Um, so I think, first of all, it's good to understand what a probiotic is. So probiotics are live bacteria um, that we know it, it helps your body in the fact that it reaches where it needs to in the gut in a large enough quantity that it's going to help your digestion or whatever else you're trying to achieve. There's a lot of products in the market that aren't probiotics and they'll use words like live um, bacteria or um, cultures and things like this. And so people are wasting their money on stuff that isn't ever going to reach where it needs to. Um, so we need to just be really careful. Um, and instead, you know, again, going back to those trusted sources and seeing what's, what products have been scientifically proven to help and not, not everybody needs a probiotic. So um, if you're just thinking, oh, I'm going to just take a probiotic and help my IBS, and I almost guarantee you that it's not going to make any difference, you need to be really tackling this. As, again, as I said, looking at sleep, looking at the other nutrition areas, looking at your stress, because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. And prebiotics are different to probiotics. Prebiotics are gut bacteria food. Um, so we can technically, you've got prebiotics in lots of food that you eat. So things like wheat would contain a prebiotic. Beetroot contains prebiotic. But the actual prebiotic supplements have actually been shown to have very little benefit in IBS and they may actually make symptoms worse. So again, just be careful that you don't think, oh, this is good for gut health. You need to be thinking about it in a more personalized way. When you say that it may make it worse, what kind of stuff can happen or what have, what have been some of the symptoms that it's shown? Yeah, so with a prebiotic, it's, it's going to feed your gut bacteria. So you think, well, why? how can that make symptoms worse? Surely gut bacteria is good for your gut. But the problem is, is when gut bacteria gets fed, it produces gas. So the gas, if you've got IBS already, is going to cause you more gas and it's going to cause um, potentially things like stomach pain, looser stools, so that it's not ideal in someone who's already got a sensitive gut. And I, I know there's so many people with, with, with very sensitive guts. Um, and I know caffeine can have a massive impact mm -hmm. and alcohol can have a massive impact. What kind of things can happen if you consume, I you know too much caffeine is, is, is a broad statement because some people can handle more. They build up a tolerance. But what kind of things and what kind of symptoms can happen if you consume potentially too much caffeine for your, for your body and the impact that it has, has on the gut? Yeah, so in terms of caffeine, caffeine we've got to realise, and we never really think about it like this, but it's a drug. So caffeine it is a drug the same way as you know illegal drugs are out there. Um and but we we drink it freely and the same as alcohol. We drink you know, alcohol, it's you wouldn't sort of I, most people anyway wouldn't like meet up with their friends on a Friday night and sit and do some lines of cocaine and think, Oh, this is fine. But alcohol it's a drug so it's still having a negative impact on your body so the way in catch caffeine works as a drug is it's a stimulant so it's going to stimulate your bowel to move um, and in larger quantities it can also cause dehydration and that's going to cause a knock-on effect the other thing that we don't realize is that um is caffeine has been linked to anxiety and there's a huge link between anxiety and then gut health so if you're somebody who suffers a lot of anxiety and you know you're then drinking multiple cups of coffee in a day then actually this is going to impact your mental health and then that's going to lead into gut health and then also sleeping patterns so it, you know these are drugs that you are consuming regularly maybe not thinking about it but it's got quite a negative impact and alcohol we know actually increases how permeable how leaky your gut is so um, the next day, often, you know, after a night out, often you might find that um, you have maybe looser stools or more sensitive gut, but it also affects a hormone in the body that actually makes you more dehydrated. So, you know, that lovely hangover you get the next day, um, this is because you just are so dehydrated. And even though it's not ideal in somebody that doesn't have IBS, it's not what I'm trying to say, but if you have IBS, then that maybe one night out in a week is enough to maybe knock you off for the entire week. So 
we just need to I think first of all find a baseline of what you are having and maybe track your symptoms against it to see what your tolerance level is um, and then look to really reduce it down as much as possible and you know getting out of the idea that especially with alcohol um, because I think you know in the western world at least we think it's okay to come home and have a glass of wine every night getting away from that idea because as I said it's a drug and it's not good for you so reduce it as much as possible you mentioned dehydration there and uh, what are kind of the signs to watch out for and is there any, what what procedures can we put into place in order to kind of bring yourself back up to adequate hydration levels bar obviously the the, the obvious one which is water yeah just drink water no it's <laughs> difficult um so yeah in terms of um hydration so first of all we need to work out probably what requirements are um, and there's various different calculations out there and i'm sure you'll know this as well um, with some of the clients and things like this when we work out a requirement it just gives you sort of the starting base and everybody's a little bit different so with most of my clients i say look at your weight in kilograms times by 35 mils and that will give you how much you need per day however that's going to increase if you're doing exercise it's going to increase if you're drinking alcohol which is going to dehydrate you so we need to find a baseline of what we need and then we need to be tailoring it signs of dehydration though things like um, headaches dry skin um higher appetite often if we're um, hungry and we can't really work out why and then it's often that we're dehydrated and also urine so look at your urine color i know it's not nice but it should be something you're doing every time you go to the toilet and it should be like a champagne color so not completely see-through that's too hydrated and that can actually cause bloating on its own but like a champagne color Um, and then constipation again is a huge sign of dehydration so the amount of people i've seen in clinic who come in they're like i've got ibs i have constipation and the severe constipation i mean you know maybe for a couple of years it's really you know causing a lot of bloating and they're simply just not drinking enough fluid so they can eat all the fiber they want in the world but if they're not drinking enough fluid they're going to just be very constipated i think the constant i i've been speaking to people recently and the kind of constipation thing is there a range of what of how many times someone should go to the bathroom for a number two um so the, i mean there's different arguments against this and this is the problem in science even between in science we will argue with each other um but um there isn't really a set um definition of what constipation is and this is the same as diarrhea as such so it's and this is probably why it's important to listen to things like this podcast to kind of get an idea of where if you're normal or not because sometimes it can be difficult to ascertain if you're normal so what i what i would consider constipation and a client to answer the question a bit better is if you're looking at something called a bristol stool chart so go and google this when you're listening to this it's a lovely chart and it'll give you literal pictures and you can always print it out and put in your bathroom if you're a real geek like me but um essentially if your your stool should be looking like a nice kind of smooth sausage and if it's anything like dry or cracked or like, you know, um, rabbit droppings, that's constipation. So I have clients, for example, who think, oh, I'm not constipated because I go maybe two or three times a day. But when you look at their actual stool type, and no, I'm not actually looking at it, they just tell me, um, their actual stools are like more rabbit dropping type. So even though they're opening their bowel several times a day, they're still constipated. And it's probably because they're constipated that they're having to open their bowels multiple times, you know, rather than just going to the toilet once a day and it's open. Um so it's more probably the stool consistency rather than going, oh, I go once a day or I go twice a day. It's more to do with the actual consistency. So I would have, I'd definitely have a little look at that and see where you lie. And it's called the Bristol stool chart. There also is a urine chart as well. If people want to check out the urine chart, um, there's a lot of charts, charts for everything. <laughs> um, in relation to kind of vegetables and, and fiber, you spoke about it there that people think that if they're having enough fiber, which probably a lot of people aren't, are there ranges 
for people and are there ranges or differing ranges between genders yeah so again there is is what and i know in the uk and i'm not sure if this um also covers ireland but the government guidelines are 30 grams a day um, and i think it does a very little bit goes up to around 35 to about 25 probably depending on ages and things like this but the the around the baseline 30 grams now i'd say with any kind of government guideline take this as a, as a baseline because it's only a guideline and you need to then tailor this to you so i have got clients who need 35 40 grams of fiber to have a normal bowel motion and i have got clients who around 25 grams they can't do any more than that because they just end up really bloated so again look at what you have and maybe run it through like an app like my fitness pal or something like this for a week don't change anything just to see where you're at and if you're, you know, only having 15 grams a day, then you know you need to really increase it and do this slowly. But maybe you're someone that's having loads of symptoms, but you realize that when you look at your diet, it's like you're having 45 grams a day. Like I have clients who are vegan and they have 60 grams of fiber a day. And it's, it's far too much. And this is why they're having symptoms. So yes, there's a guideline. But again, we must be careful to not just take this at face value. You need to be tailoring it to yourself. What would your advice be to someone who potentially doesn't like vegetables or doesn't like the texture in order to get more into their diet because this is more and more common um and it's coming up more and more for people i work with on a daily basis is that that they they don't necessarily like the crunch they don't like the texture and obviously it stems from somewhere from being a kid or something like that and adolescence can definitely have an impact what would your advice be to those guys yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you don't want to just tell clients, well, just eat it then. Because obviously, it, yeah. they might be very motivated when you start. Um, you know, you're working with somebody, you think, right, I'm going to start changing my diet. But obviously, if you hate your food, this isn't going to last very long. So there's a couple of things that I would say. So things like um, smoothies can be a really good idea. I wouldn't say all day long, but say you had one in a day, then you're going to be able to get a couple of portions of fruit and veg in into there potentially, and you're going to be hiding it. I'd say try cooking foods differently. So I'll give you an example. Um for instance, spinach, um, like when you get spinach and it's frozen and you cook it, it's really strong in flavor. But if you get um, that same spinach that's frozen and you put it into a smoothie, you literally can't taste it. So, you, you know, you can cook it differently or look at carrots. You know, um, a lot of people who don't like vegetables, actually, they don't mind potatoes. But um, carrots and root vegetables, you could easily cook those up and mash them into a potato. So you're changing the flavor you know, roasting something, boiling it, it's going to be very, it's going to be different depending on your tasting. And the other thing is, there is actually some science behind this in that if you're not used to these flavors, then your body isn't going to like them. So you do need to try a new flavor up to around 15 times for your body to know whether it actually likes something or not. So at the minute, for instance, I'm weaning my baby. So we're trying new foods and often some of the food, like the face issue will cool. Um, and it's because her body is, for bless her, for the first time trying these new foods. And we're exactly the same as adults. You know, if they're foods that you've not really had in like, a long time or ever, then you're not naturally going to go, oh, well, that was really nice. So just be do persevere to a certain extent and say, right, I may be going to pick maybe two new vegetables for this week and I'm going to try them every day at the end of the week. If I don't like them, then I don't like them. That's fair enough. I'm going to move on to something else. So just keep trying things as well. What would be your go-to smoothie if you were recommending someone to kind of try something out? So I'm I'm really boring, so this isn't going to be exciting. So I always <laughs> just get um, just sorry to disappoint. Um, so I always get um, people to have something like a you've got to think of protein. So I always think of either doing something like almond milk, um, but with a whey isolate protein, like um, 
like a, what do you call it? Just a um, scoop of that. So you're getting protein. It's, it's not all just sugar. It's not going to run through you. Um, or your lactose-free milk, which has got protein in it already. And again, these are both low FODMAPs. They're not going to cause problems. Then some sort of fruit. I always have like a handful, like maybe blueberries, maybe strawberries. Berries tend to be very good. Um, and they tend to be low GI as well. So they're not going to spike up sugars. Um, and then a fat. So maybe some avocado or um, some peanut butter. So yeah, that's about as exciting as I get. But I do say to people, limit the fruit because fruit can cause you quite a lot of bloating and I have had again a few clients I think they've got IBS but they're just eating you know like a punnet of strawberries or just smoothies but they've got three or four handfuls of fruit all in one go um, and it can cause quite a lot of bloating so just stick to one handful the the smoothies is one of those things that there's been an awful lot of kind of like myths thrown at it regarding kind of like does it get rid of the fiber do the sugars become stronger and do they impact the stomach and stuff like that? Can you kind of put that stuff to bed? Yeah, yeah. So the fiber is still the same because you're still going to have it in it. It's not like a juice. If you're juicing, then you get rid of all this pulp, and which is very sad as a dietitian because you see all the goodness essentially being got rid of, whereas a smoothie you're keeping it all in, so that's good. Um, but in terms of sugar content, sugar is really high in a smoothie. Um, so the reason being is because your sugar will come from the fruit, and this is why I'm saying limit the fruit. Um, because when you say you have 10 grams of sugar from fruit okay um then it get well, if you eat it normally say you to eat um, i don't know a handful of blueberries normally then your body's got to break down the outside of that fruit and so the sugar actually goes into your body very very slowly it trickles in so you're not going to get any peaks of um sugar in your body however when you've got a smoothie you've broken down that barrier and the sugar becomes free sugars inside the smoothie so you're going to get quite a high peak quite quickly so it's important to as i said like a handful's fine we don't need to start being really restricted and saying you're never allowed fruit and you're never allowed smoothies but i think you know these smoothies where you have maybe three as i said three or four portions that's a lot of sugar you know um even looking at things like, um, you know, these innocent smoothies and things like this, they're higher in sugar often than a can of Coke. So it's not ideal. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I, yeah, because I think that, that question's been kind of coming in an awful lot and kind of like the, the weekly Q&As about smoothies and stuff like that. So I'm glad you finally put that put that to bed. Why can losing weight with IBS be a little bit more complicated for someone who may not have IBS? Because weight loss is, can be, frustrating for people at the best of times and to have throw, throw IBS thrown into the mix can be a little bit more frustrating why any tips to manage it and um yeah why can it be a little bit more uh, complicated yeah this is one of the questions I get asked all the time and it's exactly why I've got a new program focusing on this but yeah I mean losing weight let's be honest it's difficult enough anyway and then just IBS on top of it it's just like as though somebody's trying to have a laugh you know it's, it's not great um but um in terms of weight loss you've got to think what you're trying to do so you're trying to eat healthier so when we think healthy or lower calories we're thinking more vegetables we're thinking smoothies um potentially anyway um but salads um you know trying to eat more regularly trying to do things like maybe hit classes intense exercise basically just to reduce to kind of reduce the amount of calories you're taking in and then increase the amount of calories you're burning and that's where we get the weight loss the problem is though with ibs is often if we just suddenly start eating tons and tons of fiber and all that you're just going to get very very bloated very quickly you're going to end up with maybe looser stools stomach pain um and the other thing with ibs is you already feel often very bloated and fatigued so you're not going to have the energy that you need to exercise so it's you know you try and do one thing for your ibs and then your weight changes and it just goes back and forth it's really difficult to know kind of where to start 
So yeah, in terms of tips for losing weight with IBS, because we sort of talked about why it's difficult, um, I would say is scale it back a little bit because if you're trying to do all IBS and weight loss all at once, as I said, you're just going to be yo-yoing from one thing to the other. You're not going to get anywhere and your symptoms are going to get worse. So first of all, what I would say to you is, again, get a baseline, do a food diary for maybe seven days, and this is what we get to do, get people to do in the program as well. And then have a little look to see where you're at with your exercise, sleeping patterns around your IBS. The reason I'm saying focus on IBS first is because as soon as you suddenly have guess what more energy levels and your food variety increases that you can eat then weight loss will come very easily as a second as a second element whereas if you're trying to you know think right I need to exercise loads and do this hit classes and, and eat loads of fiber but you're in a world of bloat and pain that motivation is only going to last so long so um, as I said just take it step by step um, and just scale it back rather than thinking about all the different elements you need to um, to achieve because it's just not going to happen otherwise yeah, I think, it, as you said, weight loss or going on a weight loss journey can be frustrating enough. Um, so I think it's just kind of trying to figure out what works for yourself with kind of the foods and stuff like that. You've mentioned the FODMAP diet mm-hmm. and, and, and that. Can you explain what FODMAP, FODMAP means and how to implement it into someone's routine? Yeah, so FODMAP, and don't freak out if anyone's listening to this because you do not need to remember these words, they're very sciencey. But FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So they're just basically different types of carbohydrates that we find in various different foods. They're not bad for you either, so don't worry. Um, but essentially, what these carbohydrates do, you know, things like lactose, for example, in dairy fructans that are found things like wheat, um, garlic, this kind of thing, and fructose as well, and honey and certain fruits. What happens is you eat them, obviously, they go into your stomach, then they go into the tube after the stomach, which is called your small bowel. Um, and most food gets should be digested around this time, but these FODMAPs don't. They end up in the bit right at the end, your large bowel, where they hit lots of gut bacteria, um, and the gut bacteria break them down in a process known as fermentation, causes loads of gas, it draws in fluid, and you end up with IBS symptoms. Now, interestingly this reaction actually happens in people who don't have ibs as well so um often again like every dietitian will tell you they've had someone in clinic before where who's come and gone oh i've got a problem with wheat and they haven't got a problem with wheat or all fodmaps they're just eating massive portions so obviously the more you eat the more gas is going to be so even if you haven't got ibs this does actually happen to some extent the issue in ibs is your gut is already sensitive so when this this process happens we know that there's an extra level on there where people have food intolerances. So there's actually more, maybe more gas, more fluid. And also um, there's pain signaling that goes back to the brain when actually there's maybe nothing going on in the gut. It's just normal digestion, but your brain's reading it as pain. So it's not great. So what we do with this diet, it's not actually a diet, it's a process. We take all of them out for a period of around four weeks. So just a real short time thing. And then we reintroduce one type of um, food, one type of FODMAP back at a time to find out number one, what is causing the problem, and number two, how much of that food somebody can manage. So long-term, it's no not restrictive diet. They're kind of thinking, oh, okay, so I can have one slice of bread, but anything more than that, for instance, is going to cause me bloating. So it gives real clarity. Um, and just to note there, it's really important that people don't use this as a diet because actually it's been shown even in the period of four weeks, it reduces levels of good gut bacteria. So imagine, you know, we do see people, unfortunately, who do try and do this on their own. Um, and, you know, a year later or six months later, they're still on the diet because they think, oh, I feel so much better now. But actually, it's potentially doing some damage to your gut. So it is important to do that reintroduction phase as well. Um, and tips to implement it. So number one, and I might sound biased, but there's reasoning behind this. You need to be working with a dietitian on this. 
And often people, when they start restricting, they get very confused. There's such things as FODMAP stacking, where you can end up with like maybe two safe levels, but together that's too much. I'm not going to go into too much detail. Um, or you might find that actually your calcium intake becomes very low because suddenly you don't know how to replace the calcium you were having. So people end up with nutritional deficiencies. Um, and then when we reintroduce, it's difficult to interpret those results as well. So dietitian, this is in all the medical guidelines as well. If you want to check and just back myself up and make sure that I'm not biased with that. Um, then the other thing is probably not overcomplicating it. So a lot of people think oh, I need a new diet, I need a meal plan, all this, but you don't. Have a look at your own diet, maybe do a seven day food diary. And have it, this is what I get with my, my clients. And we look over it and instead of thinking, oh, you need a whole new plan, which they don't, they just need to like make small little changes. So something like, for instance, um, lasagna, where you've got pasta in there, you could change to a wheat-free pasta. And then we know there's wheat and garlic in the sauce. We can choose change to like a garlic oil. We can change to a wheat-free um, sauce. You know, so there's little changes rather than having to make the entire diet differently, which is not the case. And you're not going to stick to it for very long if it's complicated. Um, and then mistakes, I guess, that I'm sort of seeing with this is probably um, just along the lines of, as I said, is people at face value, I think in fairness, it looks very basic. You think, oh, just avoid these FODMAPs. How hard can it be? Um, but people end up stacking. So as I said, they, they have maybe two safe portions, but together it's too much. Um, they do things like they'll just cut whole food groups out so they have no grains and have no dairy at all. So they end up quite deficient in certain micronutrients. Um, and the other one is fiber. So a lot of the FODMAPs do, um, they are in a lot of vegetables. So instead of people switching things out and thinking, okay, so I had onion that day, I'm going to switch it in for spring onion. They just take the onion out of the diet. So they end up very constipated because they actually haven't taken um, into consideration they still need fiber with it. That's, I, think that's I think that's very, very useful information because I think a lot of people just take out foods completely. And rather than kind of testing things, there's we're, we're very dramatic creatures that way it's like all or nothing approach. And I think that's very, very, very useful information. You mentioned bloating a good few times. And I think girls can have a very tough time uh, for this as, as well as lads, but girls in particular. Um, have you got any myths about it or any tips to kind of deal with it because i think obviously it's a wide range of tips and stuff like that and it's people dependent people with endometriosis can suffer from a little bit more but what's the, what's the kind of what are the main kind of myths that you hear about it yeah no it's definitely um, it's a special issue for women and i because uh, i have um digestive problems myself and it was one of the issues that i had you know growing up i'd be going to the gym all the time and i'd literally go look at other people who were maybe the similar build as me and they would literally have um you know abs or something and i had this big belly and i remember thinking do i have body dysmorphia because my weight was fine but you know i had this like belly which is not ideal when you're um a girl kind of trying to grow up and you know you see these other bodies around you which is probably not the healthiest thing anyway but yeah just a touch on that so in terms of um things to to help with bloating probably um Things like movement's going to help because if you're moving, you're going to be able to release any kind of excess gas, which sounds disgusting, but it's better than kind of waiting until it's blown up in your stomach. Um, certainly probiotics can help. But as I said, you need to be careful that they have been proven to help by um, evidence and to help with specifically bloating. Um, looking at the FODMAP diet, FODMAPs are probably the biggest contributor to um your bloating with our irritable bowel syndrome or bloating in general so definitely having a look at that one as well to find out you know what your tolerance level is to different foods and again just going back through things like the myths um it's probably the same thing as i was talking about earlier you know gluten will not cause bloating it's other foods in the other elements in those foods and dairy will not cause bloating unless you have a lactose intolerance you've mentioned exercise and 
bloating, is there a particular type to aim towards or is it any type or is there types to avoid? Yeah, so again, we need to look at research versus reality. So in the research or like in science, then we would be told, you know, it's that slow exercise. So things like yoga has been shown to be very good for IBS. So yoga twice a week. And there's been one study showing that it helps as much as a FODMAP diet, you know, and obviously there's a mental um, health impact there as well. Um, Things like walking, you know, this kind of slow, steady exercise to help you to relax. um, And also then to avoid things like hits, a high intensity where you're driving blood away from your stomach um, to your muscles is going to cause problems. However, I do have a client and I've been working in this area for 10 years. So I do have some clients that just have a very stressful life, which we obviously try to address as a separate issue. But they find that going to a spin class or going to hip class gives them such a stress relief that the benefits outweigh any kind of negative. So I would just say to anyone, um, the main thing is you need to be doing something daily. So even if you're somebody who's like maybe goes to CrossFit three times a week and does nothing in between, in between, you know, get out walking or something. So as long as you're doing something daily, um, it doesn't have to be anything intense. But after that, maybe just track your own symptoms against your exercise before you have before just taking out everything that you love. Um, and then you can find your own tolerance in what works. Yeah, I. It's funny you mentioned spin. I absolutely despise the thing for teaching it for two years. I just can't stand it. So I'm anti spin. And anytime my clients ask me about spin, I'm like, nope. Uh, I just it's very very biased. Uh, but yeah, no, I I think there's also been some research shown about it, kind of like yoga and stuff like that can be beneficial towards the gut because I think it's obviously the kind of de stressing the mind as well and decluttering the mind in relation to kind of working with kind of the stress thing again and the anxiety thing. One of the products that's kind of out there at the minute is the likes of cbd oil and hemp oil and all that kind of stuff what is your take on it because i know in the uk it's heavily regulated they can't make the sweeping statements yeah that's uh, yeah so yeah cannabinoid oil it's um i guess i suppose a lot like lots of things in ibs it's a chronic condition so we want to as humans as soon as something that's meaning natural comes along we want to be like oh i want this you know and you want it to work Sadly, there's no research in CBD oil in IBS. What we have, so there is always a sweeping statements, uh, maybe, maybe not allowed in the UK, but there's maybe, um, there is a few different sweeping statements I've seen, um, but there's, there's no research proven that it helps. And when we look at like the actual um, science behind it, cannabinoids um, to actually help in any kind of gut health would have to be very strong. Um, so cannabinoid oil is such a diluted version. So if, even if it was to work at any level, it's probably going to be absolutely minimal at best. I really don't see that it would work because it would have to be a lot stronger. And then obviously with actually things like cannabis, there's that link between that um, and the mental health. So that's probably going to long-term make your IBS worse. So I would probably avoid it at the minute because we don't have enough research. So a lot of people will come back as well. This really annoys me and says, oh, just because it doesn't say the research doesn't say it's good doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. But equally, we don't know it's safe, you know. So if you know that something hasn't been proven to work um, and there's potential that it could be harmful, then I would be avoiding it. It's, it's very unlikely to work as such a weak substance. Do you think that majority of the time that people, when they say it works, is more a placebo effect than actual evidence towards it actually working? Yeah, and especially in irritable bowel syndrome and other conditions where it's this chronic type of symptom with, with, with the mental health element, in um, things with like pharmaceuticals, there's up to a 50% placebo effect. So um, it's the same with things like these food intolerance testing things you see where they cost a fortune um, and they give you this lovely report and everything. Of course, you're going to feel better. And there's a, there's a massive placebo effect and it's been proven. Um, and that's why a lot of research, when we look into things like this, has to be such a high level for us to say that it works because we know that up to 50% is placebo. 
I'm delighted you've said that because I, I didn't want to make the statement myself. So I'm glad you've said that. Um, in relation to the likes of those tests and stuff like that, why do you think so many people have gone for those? And why do you think it's potentially, it needs, needs a little bit more legislation to potentially protect the consumer? Why do you think so many people go for those intolerance tests? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think like, first of all, anyone that's done it, please don't feel, you know, like stupid or silly. A lot of my clients are so upset when they find I've done it. it. Yeah, it, it costs a lot of money as well. And um, they're about like some of them are like 300 to 600 pounds. Um, I'm not sure what that is in euros at the minute, but it's not cheap. So the reason people do it is because you get this diagnosis or, you know, you, you obviously into your food or health or whatever it is. And you feel a little bit like, well, what can I do now? Um, and it, it feels a bit you were a bit lost on what the next step is. And I think. They're quite clever in their marketing. They'll often use people, again, like influencers, celebrity bloggers, et cetera, um, to push them. Um, but and that, I guess people are just trying to do anything they can to feel better. Um, but the actual tests themselves are called IgG, um, and they've actually have got no correlation at all to food intolerances, food allergies. And the really frustrating thing is, as a registered dietitian, if I was to sell these, I would lose my license. So there is a regulation there. The government obviously know that, that, that these things are not, you know, legitimate, but um, yet they allow them to carry on. Um, and for I'm not going to say names, but I was actually recently offered um, some consultancy work um, with one of the companies and I had to decline it because of obviously my registration um, and obviously ethical. I wouldn't do it anyway. Um, but they were trying to get a registered dietitian on board because the sales have been falling, thankfully, um, to get, so that people would believe them again. But um, yeah, they're not accurate at all. And they can lead, I've seen them lead to eating disorders, all sorts of things, really bad health problems. It's good to hear that the, you uh, go for your morals rather than the wallet, because I think yeah. too many people are going down that route, unfortunately. Um, I think the last question that I have for you is regarding kind of like the, the vegetarian or the vegan diet, because some people think that it could be more beneficial for their stomach and their gut health and gut mac- microbiome and stuff like that. What is the real story behind it? Yeah, so there's absolutely not a single study showing that a vegan diet is any better than um, a, a general diet, I guess. What we do know that is a diet that's high in animal protein. So, you know, um, I don't know the figure. I'd, I'd have to find that out at a later date. But um, for instance, if someone was having, I don't know, meat and eggs and everything three times a day every day, which is obviously very high, then we know that that isn't good for your gut. But there's there's nothing to say that a full vegan diet um, or plant-based diet is actually any better. So um, I wouldn't say if you're, I mean, fair enough, there's other reasons somebody might want to go plant-based or vegan, um, that, and that's absolutely up to you. But if, you, if you're someone who's listening and you have IBS, you think, oh, I have to do that for my IBS, that's not true. What I would say there is we generally, as a, as a nation, we, we have too much, um, we don't have enough, sorry, plants in our diet. So we definitely have a little look to see where you can maybe um, balance up a little bit having you know some more beans and pulses and things like that um, but you don't necessarily need to go um, as I said full vegan and often we have a lot of um, people who do this um, and because they're suddenly eating a lot more FODMAP so like beans pulses etc they're going to end up very bloated and um, it's a massive shift you know to suddenly eat everything from plants and um, that you know day from one day to the next they're shifting doesn't really give the gut long enough to get used to it so it does take quite a long time to settle doesn't mean equally it doesn't mean you can't do it if you really want to do it and you've got IBS there's ways around it you can still do the low FODMAP diet you can still change things around find your you know tolerance of fiber um, but it is difficult I I like so much information in this episode so many myths busted regarding FODMAP we've got food intolerance testing we've got CBD we've got so much stuff about there managing your stress and hitting the source rather than looking for something to actually manage it uh 
where can we find out information where can people work with yourself um and when is the podcast coming out so um podcast will be coming out shortly um so um it's one of those things i've got a massive to-do list <laughs> um i will let you know um but in terms of finding out with me uh, out more about me um just my instagram is probably the best it's the dot um ibs dietitian or you can have a look at my website, which is www.thefoodtreatmentclinic.com. And honestly, guys, if you've got questions, if you want to have a chat, just send me a message. I love talking about this stuff. As I said, I'm a real geek, so I really don't mind. And like, Kirsten, thank you so much for your time. I know you're you're, you're super, super busy and you also have a, a new child. So uh, I'm very, very grateful for your time. And guys, please do, if you enjoy the episode at all, please do the tag, tag the two of us up on your story. And as, as Kirsten says, if you have any questions, do pop her over any. And please do, if you have any issues with your stomach, please go and talk to a dietitian rather than trying to reach for something and trying to fix it yourself. You're better off trying to work with someone that knows what they're talking about rather than trying to fix it yourself so Kirsten thank you so much for coming on um and thank you so much no thank you so much for your time